Welcome to this week's episode of Getting on the Green, your real estate podcast with your host, Craig Merlin. In this week's episode, I have a lifelong friend coming on, Spencer Friedman. Uh, we have a lot of years together. We went to high school together, went to camp together when we were younger, went to George Washington University together. Uh, he then uh, got a little bit more education than uh, I did. He got an MSRED from Columbia University, so uh, his intelligence is shown through that. Um and I'm excited to bring him on. So welcome, Spencer. I'm glad to have you on. I've been talking to you about this for a little bit. I'm glad you uh, finally were able to pencil me into your busy schedule. Happy to be here. So, uh, Spencer, tell us a little bit about uh, your background, other than what I kind of briefly mentioned. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure, sure. So, yeah, I went to GW for the first two years of college, actually, and then the uh, the summer between sophomore and junior years of college, uh, which was 2010, um, I got an internship at a company called Rialto Capital, uh, which had just been started by Lennar Holmes um, as sort of their distressed debt arm during the Great Recession. Um, I think a couple of weeks before I started as an intern, as a 20-year-old intern, they had just bought several billion dollars worth of uh, defaulted loans from failed banks that had been taken over by the FDIC. Uh, and I was kind of thrown into the deep end, so to say, um, doing everything there, helping them however I could. Uh, and, and, and along the way, kind of learned a lot very quickly. Uh, and that was a very interesting summer for me. Um, so interesting that I actually transferred from GW to UM to hang on to that job that I was, you know, that internship turned into a job while I was in school. Um, it seemed smart to hang on to that job. It was in the field I wanted. Very few firms were hiring in the depths of the recession in 2010. Uh, this was a job that, that not only I enjoyed, but that had the, you know, I was learning a lot and it had potential to be a well-paying job. So it seemed like a smart idea. Um, long story short, I ended up staying at Rialto for about five years. Uh, so from 2010 to about 2015, when I left to go to New York City, as you mentioned, I went to grad school, kind of took a year off. Uh, to get a master's degree and go to New York City and learn from some smart people up there. Um, I worked for a, a fintech company, a real estate fintech company called Assess RE, uh, which for those listening are familiar with Argus, it's sort of a, a cloud computing competitor to Argus, which is still around now. Um, worked with them for a couple of years before moving back to Miami in 2017, uh, mid 2017 came back to Miami and, and now my dad and I run our small family uh, real estate investment shop. Uh, we're owners, operators, syndicators, managers, uh, passive investors, uh, you know, the, 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 the whole, uh, the whole gamut. We, we do anything under the sun, real estate related. If it makes sense, if the returns are good. Um, and yeah, that's, that's uh, the short version of, how I got to where I am today. Okay, so so let me dig a little bit into uh, your story, which definitely is an interesting one. Um, so how did you know that you wanted to get into real estate? Was it because your father was in it and you kind of grew up around it? Or, you know, how did you figure out, uh, this is what I'm going to do? Because when you left GW, at that point, I was still definitely searching for what I was going to be doing in my life. And you already had what seemed like a decisive answer as to, you know, this is what I'm going to be doing. I need to go down this track because this is going to make me a success. So, you know, what, what brought you to that decision? Sure. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, for, for one, I, I felt like I had an aptitude toward it. Uh, I was always kind of a math guy, always a science guy. Um, I ended up uh, majoring in economics as an undergrad. I love, uh, you know, I love analyzing the economy, why things happen, which businesses are going to work, which businesses are not. And as you know, real estate is, you need to be a business expert, every kind of business. When you're evaluating a tenant, you need to think to yourself, hmm, is this a viable tenant? You know, are they selling? Are they selling goods out of their store? Is this an e-commerce resistant store nowadays? Is this a COVID resistant store? Um, you know, if I'm going to spend leasing commission money and tenant improvement money on this tenant, are they going to blow out in 24 months and I'm stuck with a space that's improved for a weird use that now I'm going to have to pay another commission on and another TI expense on? So, I always felt like I had an aptitude toward it. Like you mentioned, my father. Is, uh, has been a real estate investor for 20 plus years, was a real estate transactional attorney before then. On my mother's side, my mother's father was a developer, kind of grew up around him while he was developing uh, in, in Miami. And so, yeah, I mean, it's mostly just history. I, I grew up Saturday mornings with my dad going to, you know, going to the property, walking around, checking on tenants, checking on, you know, how the properties look, picking up trash, uh, you know, just kind of it was just fostered from a young age and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I went to college as you know I think I went to college to study physics uh, and you know that was fun and all but at some point I was like okay what a, what's my career gonna look like you know and physics kind of even though there's plenty of career opportunities as a physics major it was you know do I want to go down that route or do I want to study something that'll keep my options open more um, and when I fell into the Rialto opportunity I saw that number one there were opportunities to make money and like a lot of people, I enjoy making money. And number two, um, it was enjoyable. It's interesting. It's, it's fun kind of analyzing a real estate deal, be it an acquisition, be it a sale, be it a new lease, be it, uh, you know, repositioning, relocations. There's just so many problems. And I like solving these problems um, as a real estate investor and operator. So I enjoy it. I like the opportunities that, that it uh, affords me. Um, and I like having discussions like these. So. So tell me what it's like to, to work with your father um, or, you know, not necessarily yours specifically, but like a child working with a father. Sure. Um, I, I'm lucky. My dad and I get along great. Um, we've had uh, we've been working together almost three years now uh, and we've had zero disagreements. I should say zero. Zero heated disagreements. Occasionally we'll disagree about mm -hmm. something. We'll talk it out and ultimately we'll come to some decision. We'll agree to disagree. We'll move on. There's been no, no one's gotten upset. No one's raised a voice. No one's gotten angry. So you keep a fairly healthy relationship throughout. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure working, people working with their family is a complicated thing, especially father and son. I'm lucky. I have two sisters, neither of whom are interested in the real estate business. So it's not like I'm vying with another sibling for kind of who's in control of the next generation. It's, it's, very much understood in my family that my dad and I operate our business, and as he slows down, I will take over, and um, it's uh, mutually beneficial. My dad trusts me. Um, he's able to step away uh, and get more control of me. I'm happy to take over more control. Um, so how is it working with one parent? I mean, that's suspected to go a lot of ways. I'm blessed that it goes a very good way. Um, and yeah, it's been nothing but a pleasure. So I don't know if you've had to face this or not, but um, 
Have you had any situations where you are either hampered or not necessarily like living up to your father's name per se? I don't know if I'm asking this question properly, but basically living up to somebody who's already established in the business and you're just starting out, not saying that you're, you know, not knowledgeable or as knowledgeable as your father, but have you come into situations where you have to kind of break through his name in order to create your own? Or are you kind of sitting back and living off of, you know, the, the joint name? Um, or how, how does that work with, uh, with your situation? Sure, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, for one, certainly I'm trying to build my own name and my own reputation and my own work product that gives me credibility, right? I don't want to just build off of my, my dad's credibility and take that over because I don't think it quite works that way. Um, but that said, um, you know, there's definitely some added pressure of like, no matter what I produce, no matter what I create, no matter what value I bring, there's going to be a naysayer out there that says, oh, he just, he got that from his dad. His dad had money and, and his dad made it. So he made it, you know, if he didn't have his dad, he wouldn't have made it. And you know, I don't care, you know, lucky for me, I, I, I don't pay too much attention to that, but that's no matter what I do, if I took it, if I take it from where it is and I quadruple it or I do 10 exit or I do whatever, there's always going to be someone that's going to say, Oh, well, you know, he got it from his dad, which is, you know, there's some credibility to that. My dad's my mentor. I mean, I learned from him. Number one, we have this platform that was there before I got here. You know, there's these legacy assets of ours that we, that we've managed forever, that we've managed effectively, that I'm stepping into his shoes and kind of learning from him and taking over. So certainly he gets most, if not all of the credit for that, but, Listen, uh, you know, people are gonna, gonna gonna talk badly. People are gonna make things up, and just gotta silence that out. I think I mean, it's the best opportunity for me. It's mutually beneficial. Like I answered the last question, and you know, it is what it is. I'm happy. He's happy. That's really all that matters. So, so is working with a family something that you would suggest to people, or you know, is it something that you would kind of approach cautiously, or what? What would you say? There was not an opportunity for me right when I finished college. It wasn't, oh, Spencer, go to college, go through the motions, and then the minute you graduate, you've got a job with me, getting paid whatever you want, doing whatever you want. <laughs> it didn't work like that. I, there was not an opportunity there. I had to create an opportunity there. Um, like I said, I worked at a blue chip real estate investment firm for years. I went and got a master's degree. I worked somewhere else. And funny enough, I actually had another opportunity when I was up in New York to stay in New York and to, to start kind of a, a long career path in New York in the finance world there, in the real estate world, uh, and had, had a conversation with my dad. And he kind of said at that point, when I was kind of at a fork in the road, do I go down this track in New York or do I pick up and move back to Miami and take over with my dad? He kind of said, listen, why are you going to do that? I'm down here. I need help. I want to slow down. You know, we've got this great platform. I built this business. You know, what why wouldn't you come down here and work with me at this point? You know, at that point I was 28 or 29 years old or whatever. Um, and I had the experience that, that if someone were to ask me, Hey, I'm, I'm 22. My dad has this business. I would say, go work somewhere else, go to school, go work somewhere else, go travel, go try a different business, do everything else because you'll appreciate it that much more when you get there. If you don't know anything else, how do you compare it? You know, working with my dad, I see what a pleasure it is because I know, what the upper, what the situation was like somewhere else. And, and I know what other people's situations are like from, from my, my network and, and friends of mine and, uh, and all that. So 
yeah, I would say definitely work somewhere else. Um, definitely create some value. Um, and last thing I would say is once you make the move to work with your family, there's not, you can't really quit. Whereas when I was at Rialto, when I got into Columbia and I knew that's what I wanted to do, yeah, it was shitty. I had a good relationship with my boss. I had to walk in and say, hey, listen, I got into school. You know, I'm putting my two weeks in. It's shitty. I don't have that opportunity now. Um, as my dad slows down, I can't then say to him, hey, whoa, 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 dad, come, you know, come back. You know, come back. you got to start taking it over. It turns out I don't want to work here anymore. It's not really an option. I knew that when I came back. I knew that when I started taking more of the reins, that it was irreversible. Every new responsibility that I take on is basically forever. So... Wow, I never thought of it that way. That's that's an interesting take on it. Um, obviously, there's loads of benefits that come with that, but at the same time, there is that drawback of there's no going back. You know, you you can't. You well, I guess in theory there is, but you're going to destroy an established company uh, that you know yeah, do, doesn't necessarily. Not, if you're working for Joe Schmo or you're working for wherever you're working, you can always quit, and it's it's. No hard feelings, or even there are hard feelings. It's like, listen, I found a better opportunity. Off I go. You know, good luck. With a family business, it's it's more complicated than that. You know, there's obviously there's family relations which are more important than business relations. And, you know, you got to balance something. Lucky for me, it's it's today. Knock on wood, not been particularly complicated. So, okay, so let's uh, pivot slightly. Um, what does your company focus on now? So, like, what are you? What do you guys do? What you know? Are you owning residential properties? You know, commercial properties. What are you doing? Sure. So we, we actively manage uh, one large apartment building here in Miami. We're past investors and several others, um, and uh, we're active managers of a large industrial property near the airport, just west of the Miami International Airport. Um, but our, our bread and butter, I would say, is grocery anchored retail. We've, we've dealt with uh, a number of public shopping centers over the years, uh, several Winn-Dixie centers. Um, we've got a Harvey's center in our portfolio now, uh, you know, and we've bought and sold these public centers, uh, you know, over the years. So um, you you said that you had grocery anchored um, centers. What what does an anchor mean? Like what it, what is an anchor tenant. Sure. So, so typically, an, an anchor tenant is one that draws uh, draws people to the center. So, um, like I said, our bread and butter is a is a grocery anchor center, typically a Publix, ideally a Publix. We, we really like doing a Publix. Um, and the way that works is, um, you know, in a pre-COVID world, a typical family goes to Publix once a week, right? They go. Maybe, maybe the mother goes with the two kids, maybe the father goes with the kids, maybe the whole family goes. But regardless, they need to go to Publix. They need their groceries once a week, once every two weeks, whatever it is. And the idea is that because they need to get in their car and they need to go park at the shopping center and they need to go into Publix, while they're there, they may then go to the restaurant for dinner. They may then get their haircut, get their kids' haircut. The mother might get her nails done. They may pick up their prescription at CVS. They may drop off their kids at dance school or karate school, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's just, it's basically the anchor brings the people to the, to the shopping center so that the, the neighboring tenants get more business. And as a result, as the landlord, the neighboring businesses pay more rent. Uh, so typically the rents would be higher at an anchored center versus a non-anchored center or 
even a shadow entrance center. Uh, and that's based on the traffic flow of the patrons, basically? Yeah, I mean, imagine you're, uh, you're a restaurant operator. Would you rather be, you know, on a heavily trafficked road or would you rather be on the side street? Would you rather have more visibility or less visibility? Would you rather have more foot traffic or less? You know, and listen, for some people, they say, hey, I don't care, especially nowadays with the internet. Hey, I don't need an anchor. Hey, I don't need visibility. I've got a great restaurant. It's small. I'd rather pay lower rent. I'd rather pay less rent and be on side street. I don't need to pay more rent. Whereas there's other people that thrive on the traffic thrive on getting having people walking by they want people seeing it they want people walking in um, so public draws traffic especially a, a high grossing public people go people park people go there when they park and they go there they want to get more things done than one um, so the rents are higher and it's also beneficial for as a landlord to try and curate that tenant base. you don't want to when you're leasing a space, it doesn't always necessarily make sense to lease a space to somebody who's going to pay the most rent because maybe that concept won't survive. Like I said, sometimes you'll take a worse deal from a surefire tenant who's going to be there for 30 years and who's going to pay the rent on time. You know, someone can agree to a high-in-the-sky rent number. 90 days later, they're already asking, hey, landlord, I need some rental assistance. And the landlord knows, and you know, dealing with a tenant who doesn't want to pay the rent, who you have to evict, you have to make deals with, who is a bad actor, no matter what rent they agree to pay, it's going to cost you more money in the long run, more money, more headache. Vacancy at a center isn't good. Um, you know, so All right, that mix is very important at a, at a shopping center. Uh, that's something that the landlord and asset manager needs to keep in mind. So are you focusing um, on a geographical kind of area or do you spread out you said you like your uh, grocery anchored centers and you said Publix and Publix is you know a southeast United States brand um, so are you going outside of Miami outside of Florida you know looking for product elsewhere or are you kind of keeping it close to home where it's you know probably easier to manage so to answer your question uh you know, what I tell people is that we're Florida-wide. I would say our focus is Miami, Tampa, Orlando, and Jacksonville. Uh, those four cities we either have a presence in, we've had a presence in, or we want to grow our presence. Uh, but that said, we would go anywhere to Florida and really anywhere that Publix would go. Um, the other day I was looking at a public center in Mobile, Alabama. Publix goes as far north, I think, as Virginia nowadays, maybe even further mm -hmm. north. Um, so that said, we built a ground-up Publix in, uh, in uh, South Carolina. Uh, we recently did a, an interesting deal up in Massachusetts uh, with a grocery store up there. Um, so we'd really go anywhere. The focus is Florida. I don't know if I would seriously consider many deals too far away from Florida today. Uh, there's plenty going on in Florida. It's definitely our specialty. And I, like I assume you are, are bullish on Florida, given uh, a lot of factors that we don't need to get into. But um, yeah, I would say Florida is the focus for now. Okay, so Florida might be the focus, but you mentioned that you've done deals and uh, potentially are going to do deals in the future um, outside of potentially Miami, where you know you live and. So how do you manage that? Are you physically going to these sites? Do you have on-site managers? How, how are these sites managed if you don't live at where the actual product is? Sure. Um, well, 
retail centers, a lot of it day to day is autopilot. We, we have on staff a couple of property managers, uh, and they go to the property once a month with plus or minus. I, as the kind of asset manager, I'll go up once a month or once every couple of months, depending on what's going on. Um, and you get trusted vendors. I mean, you have, uh, you know, the, the local porters are a wealth of information. You know, they're there at six in the morning every day. When, it, when even in Miami, you know, I'm, I'm not at the properties at six in the morning. You learn interesting things about properties at midnight or at six in the morning. You know, or when it's pouring rain. Um, and managing things from afar, you don't always see what's happening. You know, is the water pond? Is one light in the corner of the property off? Uh, you know, you have to rely on the people. That's why it's important to be hands on with your vendors and with people business with including tenants some of our properties we have good relationships with tenants who are kind of like the police officers who will watch and say hey this guy's illegally parking hey this lights out you know and we work with them and, um you know we appreciate that they're that they're hands-on they're there all day every day and they see what's happening and they give us feedback and we act based on that feedback so you can manage things from afar it's good to get in front of people and to, to meet people and to, to shake hands and to talk to people face to face which we certainly do but you know, this day and age, with Zoom and with with instant communication, the way we have it, and being able to send photos and videos or texts and all that, a lot of it can be done remotely. Um, so, you know, we have experience with that. But, you know, if we were to do, if we were to start doing a bunch of deals in Orlando, for example, yeah, it would make sense to, to deal with somebody local there, to find somebody trusted local there that could be could be to the property, you know, in less than an hour if need be, uh, which which you know we don't have. So when looking for a new deal, what does uh, CF Properties or Spencer consider a good deal? Well, I mean, it's it depends on a lot of factors. I mean, it depends. Are you, are you trying to bring investors in? Are you trying not to? Um, is there a value add? Is this a cookie cutter, coupon clipper kind of deal? You know, and it's, it's, it's all about uh, value. Know, like everything else is that is the return on your cash is it risk adjusted does it make sense is there good value there or not you know if it's a if it's an eight plus eight plus gross anchor deal it's 100 percent occupied with blue chip tenants obviously you pay more for that um is this a deal that has tenancy issues or pending tenancy issues again we go back to our conversation earlier if i perceive some of these tenants to be problematic in five to seven years you know they're paying the rent today just fine but I think in the near term, they're going to have problems and they're going to blow out. How does that affect my property? This is a hundred thousand square foot property at 30,000 feet is occupied by retailer X. And I think retailer X is going to have major problems that affects my underwriting. That affects what I'm willing to pay for this property. Um, you know, that income is going to disappear and can I replace it? Uh, if yes, how much is it going to cost me to replace? Um, and are those types of things, things that you, like, for instance, how much is it going to cost me to replace them? How, how does somebody know that? Like without, is that from past history or, you know, how would somebody go about saying it's going to cost me this much to replace this tenant? Like how, how could you know? Uh, sure. So on the one hand, it's just experience just from dealing with retenanting spaces and seeing what the costs are and seeing, depending on the market, what the downtime is, um, you know, just know, just practically speaking, if you're going to retenant a Kmart into a huge gym, you know, a Kmart and a gym look very different, and that's going to cost you a bunch of money. You got to pay brokers. You got to, you know, you got to hope you can find that gym. It may take you six, nine months, a year to find that gym in some markets. Um, 
So on the one hand, it's experience, and, the, and on the other hand, you got to rely on someone like you. I mean, it, depending on which market I'm dealing in, I'll call a broker who's local, who's represented tenants, who's represented landlord, and say, hey, what do you think? You know, that's part of the underwriting process. Hey, I have a tenant paying $10 a foot right now, and I think they're going to blow out. Uh, what's it going to cost me to get a new tenant in there, and what kind of rent are they going to pay? And if he says, oh, that $10 is below market, you can get $20, then I look at that as upside. Uh, on the other hand, um, if he says, oh, that $10, that's above market, really the market's $5, and really there's too much space, and it's going to be hard to find somebody, that's major downside. If this tenant doesn't renew, or if this tenant even renegotiates, when the when lease term comes up, if they renegotiate, that's going to hurt. Um, so, you know, that all of this greatly affects what you can pay for an asset. Um, so, you know, it's important to pay close attention to these things. You, know, you look at a rent roll, you got to say, okay, well, how much term do these tenants have and how strong are these tenants? You know, these, that lease term is, if you consider it, you really think about it, the lease term is for the tenant. I mean, if a tenant's going to say to you, hey, I can't pay the rent anymore, I'm leaving, you can't go to them and say, hey, well, wait a minute, you have two years of term, pay me anyway. They're going to say, wait, we're, we're broke, we're going to make there's no, there's no rent to pay, you know? So, the lease term helps them, it doesn't really help a landlord necessarily unless it's a, it's a you know, a, a, a tenant that's got money or has a guarantor that's got money, unless there's some leverage there, the tenant needs to be happy with the space, making money at the space, or it's not going to work. So, um, you know, it's, these are all things to take into account when evaluating a new investment. So you mentioned uh, before about value add. What does it mean to, to have value add, be a property that's a value add property? Sure. I mean, this, this could be a property with some vacancy. Um, or maybe the current owner doesn't have the capital that we were talking about needed to re-tenant a big space. Maybe this is a grocery-anchored center where the grocer has vacated. And the, the new landlord, for whatever reason, can't wrap his head around, the, the, the current landlord can't wrap his head around how to re-tenant that space, how to court a new grocer. You know, you need money to make money, and that's true in the real estate business just like any other business. You know, you need to be ready to pay all kinds of money to get a new tenant in there. Maybe you got to improve the property to court a new tenant. You know, um, Publix won't go into just any property. You know, If you're trying to bring Publix in, they're going to have a long list of demands that they're going to want you to do just before they're going to make an offer to take over a space. Um, you know, And they make those demands because they know they can get it. They know that I know as an investor that if I find a property with vacancy and I put Publix in there, no matter what happens between those two things, I've created value and I've made money. Um, you know, so Publix knows that and they take advantage of it. They'll, they'll get as much as they possibly can out of you. Um, and they'll make it as difficult as possible because that's how you make money. So value add in retail means, is there vacancy that I can re-tenant? Is there inline space? You know, the local tenants, is there, are there, you know, cosmetic improvements that I can make to the property that will increase the rents? Is the market improving? Um, you know, is there a tenant that's vacating that is below market that I can renegotiate that that, that lease with a new tenant or, or extend the current tenant? There's, I mean, there's a thousand ways that it can go right and there's a thousand ways that it can go wrong just the same. So are you guys looking, um, when you're searching for new centers, are you looking for the anchor to already be in there or are you looking for centers that because of your relationship or, you know, your experience, you can bring in that anchor tenant and value add, uh, or are you doing both? Sure. That's a good question. I mean, the answer is both. I think, uh, I think I answered earlier, the price depends on 
a thousand factors, you know, and it's, it's what does that tendency look like? Would we buy a deal today with a brand new public lease? Yeah, we would. We're going to have to pay a lot for it, but that's pretty secure income. You know, what are the odds that Publix doesn't pay rent at any point in the next 20 years? I would say slim. Um, even with the evolving grocery business today, Publix is a strong tenant, and I suspect they're going to have no problem paying their rent uh, for, for, for a good while. Um, that said, there, there are, there's a whole situation, there's a thousand situations in between. Maybe there's a grocer there that you like. That's running out of term. That's that's you know that's going to need more term, and their lease is below market. And we've done those situations before, where you where you buy a property where the, the 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 anchor tenant has five years left, and you know that there's upside in that lease. And then three years after you acquire the property, you double the rent. You put some money in, you rebuild the facade, and there you go. All of a sudden, you got a brand new looking center. You put in you know X dollars in, and the property's worth three X dollars more. Um, and that's kind of the name of uh, the name of the game in, in real estate investment and asset management, value creation. So why, for instance, why wouldn't the owner who is selling this center to you, why wouldn't they do this themselves? You mentioned um, not having the capital, but, you know, can't you find capital potentially from investors or banks or something like that? Like, it, it seems like a quick decision to just sell if there's inherent value still left to be had within the center sure sure i mean listen there's a, a whole list a whole long list of reasons why a current landlord wouldn't want to make those improvements so number one it's complicated it's complicated to do redevelopment it's complicated to budget for these things and finance them and regarding capital yeah you can find money most people can find money i guess but that's a hard thing to do i mean it's to, to convince somebody to write a check to you to, to make improvements to a real estate deal, that's a risky deal. A lot of people don't want to take that kind of risk with their money. So, you know, you got to really know what you're doing. Um, you got to be comfortable taking certain risks uh, in a real estate investment. And, um, you know, some people just don't want to be bothered with it. I mean, that's why, that's why you know, the, the, the most valuable deals in terms of cap rates are no landlord responsibility, single tenant, single tenant triple net lease, ground leases. I mean, it's easy as can be. You buy a property and then you collect the rent. You do nothing else. There's no improvements you made. There's nobody to call. There's no roof to maintain. There's no nothing. I mean, it's, it's as simple as can be. It's basically a corporate bond, you know, backed by, you know, with some collateral behind it almost. So, you know, some people don't want to deal with the headache of improving a property and what could go wrong and, and all that. So, you know, you sell it at a little bit of a discount and someone like, like me or, a thousand other groups like ours comes in and buys something and, and hopes to create that value themselves. Okay, so we're getting towards the end of June here in 2020. And so, I I mean, we have our ups and downs of COVID. And we saw within the past couple of weeks a, a slight resurgence after um, the protesting and the reopening of states. How has COVID affected your life? Uh, let's say business life, not personal life. Sure. Um, I mean, business-wise, you know, I don't know if there's any business in the country or the world really that hasn't been affected one way or the other. Obviously, there's been winners and losers, but you know, the real estate business, of course, has been majorly impacted. Um, thankfully for us, our properties are doing relatively well compared to others. Um, you know, our apartments. You know the. the I would say it's almost exactly how it was performing before COVID. Our retail, a lot of it is struggling. Uh, you know, restaurants, uh, 
nail salons, hair salons, you know, they were ordered closed by the government. Um, and those are ha- they're having a hard time. They're getting government assistance. They tend to pay the rent, you know, and we'll, we'll work out deals with them. Um, but again, going back to the anchor, one of the benefits of having an anchor is, you know, in a public shopping center, Publix makes up, you know, somewhere between a third and sometimes 95% of the, the, the rental income. So, you know, if, if half of your rent is coming from Publix, yeah, you may not be making a whole lot of cash during COVID, but I'll tell you what, you can still pay, keep the lights on, you can still pay your mortgage. And a lot of people would be very happy in that situation right now. So I don't take it for granted. Yeah, we're not making as much money as we were, for sure, but we're surviving so far. We're doing okay. Uh, for those tenants that were forced to be closed, uh, you know, we're helping them where we can, deferring rent, helping them find uh, government assistance, um, you know, and, and, you know, working together with tenants to make sure everybody gets through this. Uh, you know, so far, nobody's closed. Um, so far, we haven't had to waive a lot of rent. Um, you know, we're sort of just extending tenants and waiving late fees and, uh, um, you know, letting people pay the, uh, the past due rent over a longer period of time, um, so that they can, you know, figure it out right now. So they kind of get their bearings and, and figure out their business. So is that, are these types of, um, responses that you as the landlord are making for your tenants? Are these things that you envision are going to be set in stone for the future? Like basically no late fees, um, whatever else you mentioned, like rent concessions, things like that. Is that something that you are envisioning you're going to have to do, you know, forever or is. No, no, it's definitely, you know, we're figuring it out as we go and it's tenant by tenant. We're spending a couple hours a week on zoom calls, just like this going through tenant by tenant of each property. You know, what's the status? Are they paying the rent? If they haven't paid the rent, what do they want? Do they want us to waive the rent? Do they want to defer the rent? Do they, have they applied for loans? You know, what's it's each one is a tailored response and it's not one size fits all. You know, I mean, you know, I'm not going to treat Publix the same way I'm going to treat a gym that closed that I'm not going to treat the same way a mom and pop nail salon. It's just, it's different situations. Um, so it's kind of need based assistance right now. And you know, if, if um, if a tenant was an A plus tenant before COVID and they paid their rent on time every single month and they were forced closed, you know, we're going to work with this tenant. We don't want to. We don't want to immediately try to evict a tenant that's that's acted right and is really doing their best. So we're going to work with the tenant. Um, but that said, on the other side of that, we do have bills to pay. The FPL bill doesn't stop. The mortgage payments don't stop. The insurance needs to be paid. The trees need to be trimmed. You know, there's expenses that need to be paid, and you know, we're kind of partners with the tenants in that respect. You know, it's, uh, we're all working together to keep the property running smoothly and. You know, have the property ready when, when when lockdowns open up in phase two, phase three, and when these things happen, the property needs to look right. The property needs to be sanitized, et cetera, et cetera. And these things all cost money. So, um, you know, that's just where we live in. The budget needs to work. Uh, space isn't free. Services aren't free. Uh, rent needs to be paid, or there will be consequences eventually. At the moment, we're being lenient and we're working with tenants, timing wise, uh, deferral wise, et cetera. But Everybody understands my bills need to be paid, so your rent needs to be paid. How do we get there? Uh, we're, we're working towards that. Okay, so what, what type of opportunities do you see in the future because of COVID that weren't necessarily there pre-COVID? Um, if there are as any. An, as an investor? Or sure. What? 
whichever any angle you want to take as a landlord, as an investor, as a tenant, you know, what any any angle you want to discuss. Yeah, sure. I mean, as, as an investor of any kind, you know, as you know, every every time there's a swing in the stock market for whatever reason stock market, property market, whatever kind of market, anytime there's a swing, there's going to be winners and losers, and there's going to be new opportunities created. Um, that's just a fact of life, a fact of free markets, right? Um, so, you know, what opportunities are there right now? Who's who's in, who's in having the, the hardest time? You know, what sector? It, obviously, it's hotels. Hotels were ordered shut. Hotels don't have the benefits of 20-year leases like I have or like office building owners have where – you have credit tenants that are on the hook for the rents no matter what. Hotels are day-to-day leases. These are day-to-day, you know, one day to the next. Hotel can go from 100% to 0% occupied and the revenue disappeared. Um, and within the hotel sector, obviously, there's certain subsets of hotels that are going to do better than others. These destination hotels, those will come back sooner, I think. Um, as far as business-focused hotels, airport-focused hotels, I think that's going to take a longer time. So with that pain of these landlords and these building owners that are, you know, not just making no money, but hemorrhaging money for real estate taxes and for just the expenses of owning a building. A lot of them may just want to get out. You know, a lot of them may want to get out. A lot of them them may hand the keys over to their lenders. uh, If their lenders aren't so flexible and then there's going to be a glut of hospitality properties on the market. And if you're a long-term thinker and you're a long-term value add player, you know, will people start going to hotels again at some point? You know, I, I would say yes. Is it in six months, two years, five years? I don't know. But I suspect that hotel spend, that nationwide hotel spend will get back to where it was eventually. So if you intend to play that long game, there's probably going to be some very good opportunities to buy hospitality properties uh, now and, and either convert them into multifamily properties or start to operate them as hotels and, and get a very low basis and maybe take this time while they're closed to improve them if you have capital um, and make them nicer. So when they, when travel starts up again, you'll have a, you know, you'll have bought a property on discount um, and have an improved property. Um, and same kind with a lot of retail properties. Malls were already down. Um, you know, there's still some money to be made as you know, malls aren't disappearing, they're hurt, and they're maybe some of them are going to go away, but the, there are, in my opinion, others that will be here for the long haul. They're cheap now. There's mall owners that are hurt and would want to sell and just want to cash out. Um, so that's another opportunity. And listen, there's countless other opportunities. There's going to be other defaults. There's going to be banks that are going to want to get rid of what they have. Uh, and when you know, it's, uh, it's supply and demand. It's just, uh, demand goes down or if supply goes up or some combination of that prices will go down. Um, it's just, uh, it's just a law of, uh, free markets. That's true. So it's just a matter of finding those opportunities and being able to pull the trigger on, uh, something that makes sense financially for you. Um, sure. so, so we come in with your tenants, tenants that you represent. You may have a well-capitalized restaurant tenant who says, Hey Craig, I'm a, get me a cheap, cheap lease right now. And you can say, okay, yeah, there's never been a better time to lease space. I mean, there's so much, so little, such little leasing activity for commercial space that if a landlord has vacancy, they'll take a cheaper deal today. You know, and someone who knows that the restaurant business will be back, why not lock in a cheap rental rate for 10 years? You know, that's, that's a selling pitch right there to somebody who's, who's got the capital to build out a space right now and, and can wait out the storm and wait until the vaccine comes out, which it will at some point. So, yeah, I mean, that, that definitely makes sense. And it seems kind of just like standard 
free markets, like you were saying, when there's an excess of supply, prices are going to go down. You know, when there's excess demand, prices are going to go up. Um, sure. You know, so I mean, all all that makes sense. And uh, I was actually talking to a uh, doing a show for a previous guest of mine uh, named Tunde. Uh, he had me on one of his shows, uh, and one thing that I mentioned was. The real estate market's a lot like uh, the stock market in on a day, for instance, where you have everything down or everything up, there's going to be opportunities for something that's contrarian. You know, that's why there are contrarian stocks, for instance, and there's contrarian um, properties as well. You know, for instance, right now, the rental market for real estate or for residential real estate is pretty darn good, whereas the retail space and the hotel space, like you said, is doing horrible. So as good as the the residential rental rates are and uh, leases are going. That's as bad as the uh, basically the opposite hotels is. So it's actually fairly interesting to see how that how that works and how there's always an opportunity. You just you just got to be able to see through the weeds and identify it yep. and kind of pull the trigger, take action on yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the beauty of uh, you know the, the free market system, in my opinion, is you know things happen. Prices get adjusted, and a price is there because there's a seller and a buyer that agree on that price, right? Mm-hmm. It's not the government exactly. saying the price. There's a supply and demand out there, and then there's a price agreed upon by two parties, uh, and both sides are happier with the transaction. You know, ninety-nine point nine nine percent of the time. So it's uh, it is what it is. You know, for the most part. Yeah, I was talking to a colleague of mine today, and he, um, we were talking about a property that we're we're trying to make an offer, or we have made offers on, but we're still slightly too far apart on the final number. And uh, my colleague mentioned to me, he said, "Hey, Craig, listen, this property might be valued at what the seller wants it at, and he might be totally correct, but the market is dictating right now that it's less than that. So although the value of the property might be there." the market is dictating otherwise. So the market yep. is what tells you what the value right now is. And, you know, when an owner can say that their property is whatever value they want, but the yep. market is going to determine that value at this current time. Yep. Yep. And that's, you know, especially today with every little bit of news that comes out, that's changing, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you own a freestanding restaurant that's ordered closed right now, your building's not very valuable relatively. If tomorrow the vaccine comes out and Governor DeSantis comes out and says, hey, all of Florida is open. Restaurants are open. You can crowd into restaurants. Suddenly, the building's worth a bit more. You're going to get your, you know, your rent might come back sooner than later. And that changes the whole equation. So whereas the stock market changes second to second because it's traded, you know, it's traded widely all day long and real estate is illiquid and it's not traded all day long, it's, it's you know, it's subjected to the same market forces um, and, and the price is really a moving target at all times, especially today with how little we know about where we're headed. Mm-hmm. Well, Spencer, that's uh, just about all the time that we have. I really want to thank you for coming on. Uh, what you told us and talked about was awesome information. I mean, I, I learn from you every time that we talk about real estate um, in general. So I appreciate you uh, coming on educating myself and the listeners. I'm most likely going to ask you to come on again at some point. So don't be surprised if I do that. Uh, Hopefully you'll be uh, available for me at that point. Um, But I just wanted to thank you very much. Uh, I really appreciated you coming on and the information that you had to tell, tell us about. 
Absolutely. My pleasure. Good time with you. Uh, and hope to see you soon. Absolutely. That's the end of this week's episode of Getting on the Green. I'd like to thank all of the listeners, especially those who have been with us from the beginning. If you haven't heard any previous episodes, please feel free to go back into the episode tab on the top of your screen or whichever way you are listening to the podcast and listen to some previous guests. The topics that we've talked about are very interesting, certainly educational, and uh, you don't know how much benefit they could have for you. In the future, we certainly have lots of great guests coming up as well, and the topic should be as interesting or if not more interesting than what we have covered already. Season two is right around the corner. Um, we will be implementing a couple of different segments in there, so the show will be changing slightly, but uh, you'll still be getting that great pertinent information that is up to date and that you can count on. Uh, so I'd like to thank everybody for the feedback. It definitely helps me as well as the show improve. I'm definitely a work in progress, so I hope you uh, can understand that I'm always looking to get better, and with your feedback, um, I definitely can achieve that goal. If you have any questions, comments, or you'd like to contact me or be a guest on the show, please email me at c-m-e-r-l-i-n at n-a-i-miami.com. So that's c-merlin at n-a-i-miami.com. Other than that, I will see you next time on the green.